Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the fifth event in the Institute for Government's Conservative Conference Fringe Programme, Harnessing Technology, Transforming Services. How can government make the most of the digital revolution? Kindly supported by the Solicitor's Regulation Authority. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director for Data and Digital Government at the IFG, the UK's leading independent think tank working to make government more effective, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you to this virtual conference. Some virtual housekeeping before we get underway. We are on the record. We'll be live tweeting from at IFG events, and you can get involved with the conference hashtag CPC20 or also hashtag IFGCPC20. Most importantly, if you're watching us via the Conservative Conference platform, you can submit questions for me to put to our panel using the Q&A box that should be on your screen. Do tell us who you are and where you're joining us from today. You can ask questions throughout the event. And for those of you who are viewing the conference in our virtual tent, I'm afraid we don't have a beige buffet or tepid white wine for you this lunchtime. But if you would like to know more about our work on digital government and data or our other areas of work, then please click on the Get in Touch button to submit your details. Our sponsors for this event are the Solicitors Regulation Authority, the regulator of solicitors and law firms in England and Wales, protecting consumers and supporting the rule of law and the administration of justice. The SRA regulates more than 200,000 solicitors and 10,000 law firms, overseeing the education and training requirements necessary to practice as a solicitor, licensing individuals and firms to practice, and setting, regulating, and enforcing compliance against the standards of the profession. So, harnessing technology, transforming services. How can government make the most of the digital revolution? Even before the pandemic, it was clear that digital technology was transforming government, society and the economy, changing how we work, how we live, how we communicate, how we access services, including legal services. The last six months has brought some of the opportunities, risks and necessity of digital transformation into sharper focus. From government departments launching major digital public services, like the coronavirus job retention scheme, in a matter of weeks, to the world-beating example of algorithmic bias provided by this summer's exam results. So how can the government make most of the digital revolution and ensure it benefits citizens? What role should government and regulators play in this new environment, in seizing the opportunities and mitigating the risks? And how can we make sure that the digitally excluded are not left behind? We've got a fantastic panel for you today to answer those questions and more. First, we'll be hearing from Lord Lucas, who's been a Conservative member of the House of Lords since 1992. He's a member of the House of Lords Democracy and Digital Technology Select Committee and a Deputy President of the Conservative Science and Technology Forum. He was a government whip before, between 1994 and 97, and later the Shadow Lords Minister for International Development. He's also on the advisory board of the New College of the Humanities and is the current owner of the Good Schools Guide. After Lord Lucas, we'll hear from Anna Bradley, Chair of the Solicitors Regulation Authority. She's an experienced chair and independent board member with particular expertise in regulation and policy, having held positions with the Council of Licensed Conveyances, the General Optical Council, Healthwatch England, Pair UK, Zurich, Ofcom, the Rail Safety Standards Board and the Care Quality Commission. She's a former chief executive of the National Consumer Council and her executive career included roles at WITCH and the Financial Services Authority. Then we'll hear from Jackie Wright, Chief Digital Officer at Microsoft. Jackie previously spent two years as the Chief Digital and Information Officer at Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, responsible for one of the biggest digitally enabled transformation projects in Europe and the technology decisions underpinning the department's EU exit plans. She was the 2018 winner of UK Tech 50's Most Influential Person in UK IT and is patron of Tech UK's Public Services Board. Last but not least, we'll hear from Dr Tanya Filer, Policy and Research Leader of the Digital State Project at the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. Her work focuses on government technology innovation ecosystems and on digital government more broadly. She runs Tech States, the Bennett Institute's interview series with leading international voices on government and technology, and she's also the founder and director of the insight and advisory firm StateUp. We really couldn't ask for a more qualified panel this afternoon. I'll invite each of our speakers to make an opening contribution of up to five minutes. Then we'll go into questions, some from me and lots, I hope, from you. Please do use that Q&A tool to submit them throughout the event. We'll aim to finish at around half past one. So without any further ado, Lord Lucas. Well, 
Thank you very much and good afternoon. I see I'm down to give the government's view on these matters, uh, but as a, as a backbencher, I shall not. I shall give my view of what the government's view should be. Uh, I see the government as absolutely crucial in this sphere. Uh, we are up against a, an existing collection of extremely large and powerful tech companies who have a direct relationship with our citizens. They need us to represent them in making sure that relationship is a fair one. I think we have a long way to go to get to where we should be, uh, but we at last seem to be, to be grasping that nettle. So I see the government as having absolutely the central role to play in making our internet-related world a prosperous and civilized one for us. And if I was to typify that, I would say that I want the likes of Google and Amazon to come to regard themselves as citizens of the UK and not as mere exploiters of our populace. In doing this, we need it to be a whole government effort. Uh, the Treasury has a very strong role to play in making sure that our domestic companies can compete fairly uh, with those using the tech giants to reach us from overseas. We've been pretty bad at that in the past. HMRC in particular has dropped the ball in a very big way, firstly with the uh, Jersey VAT exemptions, which were eventually squashed, more recently with importers typically from the Far East again evading VAT, again a complete lack of enforcement, which not only uses, loses us billions of dollars a year, um, but really cripples domestic competition. The Home Office obviously is important too in making sure that businesses here can have the employees they need. Partly that's making sure they can pick them up easily overseas. But secondly, it is making sure that they really link in with the Department for Education uh, in creating our own supply of the employees we need, making sure the skills we need are coming through. Uh, that's at the moment, I think, far too loose a relationship. And obviously, BEIS and the Foreign Office come into it too. I would like to see the government thinking of itself with all its buying power and the influence it has on the terms of trade as being in partnership with British business, not just providing a, uh, an environment in which it is possible to survive. When it comes to the matter of socially excluded people, I think we have reached the point where the internet is a utility and we ought to grasp the nettle on that and say for those who cannot afford internet access, we will provide it, uh, just as we provide light and heat and water. And that particularly applies, obviously, to, to school children and to those who need to conduct their business online in a world which is, I think, going to rely much less on people be shipping themselves to offices. When it comes to keeping in touch with the performance of the tech companies in particular, the internet generally. Um, I recommend you the report that uh, Lord Putnam's Committee on Democracy and Digital Technology produced. Uh, it's a very wide ranging and I think effective report. But I would just note that if we care about maintaining a liberal democracy, we are really going to have to fight through the internet, which is a much more chaotic place uh, than we're used to when it comes to information and truth, and where the natural outcome is probably something pretty postmodern and, un and unpleasant. That's it. Lord Lucas, thank you very much. A very wide-ranging introductory remarks taking in the sort of power of tech companies and how governments uh, can sort of better relate with its citizens and uh, private sector companies as well. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's go to Jackie next. Good afternoon, everyone, um, and thank you for having me. So, so what I think about the role of government as we think about this digital revolution and where we are relative to technology and data, um, government's at the core of improving lives and services for citizens. 
And when you think about the role in initiating and enabling economic prosperity due to all the things that are going on, I think there are a few key things for me that we really need to focus on. Um, one is really government taking a comprehensive view of everything that they can do through technology, understanding access to, to healthcare, access to education, nutrition, housing, access to capital and technology, and really understanding that and using data and technology at the core to be able to do that. Secondly, use data for insights um, into the social determinants, really the barriers and the root causes, and really harnessing the power of technology and data to understand and try to think more holistically about the challenges and how they improve lives and services. And the third is to apply it in an equitable, ethical and equal way, calibrating and measuring throughout. And when you think about where we are today, um, this recession is really going to be the worst that we've had in almost 100 years. And the power of technology today to be able to collaboratively in a global way understand the, the barriers, understand the things that are really affecting society at large and how you can apply that locally with a global view is really the, the advantage of having technology and data at the core really right now. When we think about this digital divide and skilling and the lack of the ability for people in rural areas to get access, um, the curricula, the ability to make sure the curricula is fit for purpose. Government, again, is at the core relative to policy, relative to really understanding the skills needed for everyone to participate in this new economy, for everyone to participate and what really, again, understanding the barriers to participating. Government also can use data and insights to understand the economic levers that can be affected and really be agile in policymaking, utilizing data to harness and really gain insights, predict, and then really use that again in an equitable way to apply services more holistically across the society. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Jackie. Uh, let's go to Tanya next. Hi. Lovely to be here. Thank you, Gavin. And it's a pleasure to be part of this conversation today. I think that while there has been a highly differentiated set of experiences of digital services across the UK during our current crisis, I do think that coronavirus has begun to introduce the idea that increasingly in the future, digital government will shape every part of government functioning far beyond service provision alone. And we therefore need to think actively and skillfully about how we shape what we want that future to look like, which I think requires a strategy of upskilling and a strategy of procurement reform that extends beyond digital government units alone and takes a much more whole of government approach. You know, just as uh, Lord Lucas articulated in relation to regulation and Jackie mentioned as well, I think that's going to be absolutely critical going forward. And in some ways, the current crisis has begun to enable that work and has brought out the very best of the government technology ecosystem at various different scales and across sectors as well. So, you know, I would just point out a few examples, um, GDS working to solve interoperability problems across the public sector where there have been inconsistent rules sometimes around video conferencing software, for example. We've seen innovative startups help GPs to move towards virtual appointments at a really remarkable speed. And we've, of course, also seen larger technology players helping with wide scale delivery projects uh, across uh, policy domains. We've also seen civic technology organizations spring into action and play a critical role, both at the local level um, in terms of services, but also helping to build local community. So there's lots of very positive uh, outputs that we've seen over the past few months. And I think it's important to underline that in most of those scenarios, it hasn't been about artificial intelligence and the shiniest technology innovation necessarily. It's also been significantly about technologies like data reporting, telemedicine, rather conventional in some ways diagnostic tools that have been genuinely impactful. And I think it's 
important to keep that in mind. Those successes to date are a sign of a maturing ecosystem with increasing capacity to respond to challenges at speed. That said, I do also think that the crisis has highlighted a number of pre-existing fragilities and areas where it's going to be critical to focus uh, our efforts if digital reform is to continue to benefit citizens. So I'll, I'll, I'll mention just a couple of points. Um, the first is I think there's a real need for rapid evaluation of digital and emerging technologies across different public sector organizations and not just in healthcare and the capabilities that are required for that kind of evaluation. Um, the second is a particular skill set for coordination and for government oversight of technology projects, even where delivery is outsourced. And thirdly, I think capacity and also prioritization of technology lesson sharing. So both uh, domestically across public sector organizations, but also internationally. So I think the scale of the COVID-19 pandemic has really underlined the need for policymakers facing similar and globally intertwined challenges to learn from each other and learn quickly about what has worked or not uh, elsewhere. And so it's important that we ensure that we have trusted peers from whom to learn and also from whom, with whom to share stories of failure. You know, we're talking about innovation at speed that's inevitably going to be part of the picture. So we need that trusted community with which to do that. I would also, you know, just finish by saying we don't in this country have recent inherited memory of very large scale health disaster management um, in the same way that some other countries and regions do, which means that we have a lot of learning to do on the level of government, business, society. And while I think the medical breakthroughs that we've achieved in the past months are absolutely remarkable and really an area that we should be extremely proud of, it's critically important that this also extends to how we organize for technology uptake. Um, so just ensuring that we do have those peers, you know, I would point to something like the Digital Nations, uh, which the UK is a founding member of. Um, and I would also say that we also need to make sure that while we're learning from others, we don't panic into quickly trying to replicate without adapting technology uh, solutions that may be a poor cultural fit in the UK. So it's absolutely a balancing act. And I think the best thing we can do is avoid kind of plug and play approaches from elsewhere. But instead, we should be thinking really actively and creatively about what we can learn from those experiences elsewhere. Um, and thinking methodically about how we share ideas and approaches to digital governance uh, with trusted peers, including, I would add, in the context of the integrated review. So those are the, the areas that I think we have some development to work on over the next few months and years. Fantastic, Tanya. Thank you. Very useful to have that sort of international perspective um, as well. Now, on the subject of the risks and opportunities of uh, digital technology, let's see if we can get Anna uh, back. Anna, are you there? I'm here, but can you hear me? We can indeed. Aha! Uh -huh. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, really delighted well, to be able to be heard, um, but particularly to be here at Partnering Institute for Government with uh, the party conference events this year, uh, albeit in a very different and apparently quite challenging form. Um, uh, Gavin has already introduced the SRA, so um, suffice to say we're the largest legal regulator and our job is to work in the public interest and to protect people who use legal services by setting and enforcing uh, the high professional standards that I think we all expect from solicitors. Uh, and, and, and in the legal sector, there's no question that the growth of legal services is a huge success story actually for the UK. But we all know that notwithstanding, too many people still can't access the expert legal help that they need. So only one in 10 people use a solicitor when they have uh, what is identified as a legal problem. The potential power of innovation and technology has been highlighted by the pandemic, um, as uh, I think I've heard other speakers already say, but it's also thrown up some issues. Uh, so in legal services, witnessing wills, carrying out client ID checks have come up as issues uh, very quickly. And, and I'm glad to say that fortunately, everyone has adapted quickly and tackled the challenges, which has uh, uh, been great to see. 
because the huge difference that digital services could make to people looking for affordable and accessible legal help can't be underestimated. So encouraging and supporting law tech and innovation is a key priority for the SRA uh, as a means of tackling that legal gap and improving access to justice, uh, helping to transform how services are delivered uh, and driving forward growth in the, the, the sector overall. Uh, and so it's not an accident that it's one of three corporate objectives for the next three years uh, for the SRA. So when I say it's a priority, I really mean it. It's a very significant flavour of the work that we think we need to do over the next period. So what can it deliver? Well, technology can deliver things like guided pathways, providing tailored information. It can do automatic form filling and paperwork. Uh, but uh, perhaps more imaginatively and really interestingly, it can do online dispute resolution tools supporting much less adversarial approaches to resolving problems, which changes the nature of legal service altogether. And of course, uh, as I've said, the coronavirus pandemic has illustrated that there um, can be problems too. Uh, so I think Gavin already mentioned uh, the issues around algorithms and exam results, and we need to be mindful of uh, what the implications of those sorts of things might be for legal services. Uh, and as a regulator, then the task for us is to find the right balance between public protection, particularly for the most vulnerable, and the opportunities that law tech offers to widen access. So what have we done? Um, a few things that we focused on in the past. Uh, first, uh, we started to work to make sure we don't unnecessarily get in the way by blocking new ideas or stop, stopping law firms or indeed entrepreneurs from outside the legal sector who might be able to provide legal services in new and different ways. And to do that, we launched SRA Innovate as long ago as spring 2016, which supports firms who are thinking about how they could offer legal services or manage their business in a new way, but are uncertain if regulators might stop them. So taking some of the risk out of innovation. Second, we developed a space to work with innovators to ensure appropriate protections in place. Uh, looking at this from the consumer or user angle, we set up an innovation space, which is a safe space for existing firms as well as new entrants to the legal services market. And it lets firms and solicitors test out ideas while we work with them to make sure the right protections are included. And thirdly, and only last year, we have developed some more proactive support for innovation in the space, particularly of access to justice. So uh, last year, we ran a legal access challenge funded by uh, the Bayes Regulator uh, Pioneer Fund. And our winners, which uh, brought together coalitions of third sector with tech companies and legal service providers are helping people who are expecting, uh, experiencing domestic abuse and people experiencing mental health issues. Well, so far so good, but the, the reality is that there's uh, a lot more to do. So in this first year of our new corporate strategy, we'll be looking at how, how best technology can help the digitally excluded uh, and doing some work particularly to facilitate more publicly available data about data in law firms and the justice system, because that's often cited as one of the key barriers to development of legal technology development. We also want to put um, a special focus on small law firms that support people in all our communities. Um, they're really busy places and all the more so at the moment as they respond to the pandemic usually the first port of call for many citizens and they will need extra help if they're going to uh, not be left behind by law tech. So in conclusion, uh, really interesting times uh, which need interesting solutions uh, and the legal sector is not famous for being agile and fleet of foot but I think the last six months has shown that we can be uh, and so we need to capitalise on that moment. Uh, and we're really looking forward to playing our part as the largest UK legal regulator in making sure law, tech, law tech can really help to transform how services are delivered uh, and widen access to legal support, making the most of the digital revolution. Thanks very much.
Thank you very much, Anna. Particularly interesting to hear a regulator talking about the need to sort of balance uh, risk and innovation. Um, now, for everybody watching, uh, uh, just a reminder that if you are watching us via the Conservative platform, uh, you can put some questions in via the Q&A tool that should be on your screen. We've got a few brilliant questions in already uh, on the sort of digital divide and also the role of government suppliers in all of this. Um, but before we go to those questions, um, I suppose a question, a couple of questions from me to our panel, and I'll go in the same speaking order um, that we've uh, already gone in which is what do we all actually need to to do to make all of the things that you've talked about happen and what do we all think that success actually looks like how will we know that digital transformation has succeeded and has ended up working for citizens um so lord lucas if i could put those to you first well thank you for that uh, that's rather a fast ball on the middle stump i think i don't i i don't know uh, I think the, the role of government is to create the conditions where things can succeed and to encourage people to, to innovate and experiment. I'm, I'm really encouraged to hear that the SRA is, is looking down that road. Uh, regulators can be a great barrier to innovation. The EU is a, is, is a prime example of that. Uh, but if we have an open-minded regulatory system and we recognize that there's a lot of progress to be made and that we need to make it and we need to make it work, then an active government supporting innovation and a regulatory system making sure we keep that process on track is a pretty good formula. Excellent, thank you. I, th I think don't know, I don't know is actually a very good answer, um, sort of being open about the scale of the, the challenges uh, that we face and how we're all still sort of feeling our way through a lot of the uh, finer points of detail. Uh, Jackie, if I could go to you next. Yeah, I, I think Lord Lucas described it well. Um, government's role is about creating the conditions. And when you think about success, it's a combination of private and public sector working together in an ecosystem that effectively provides services, effectively provides the conditions by which you understand the economic levers of your society to be able to affect change. And you can do all of that in an agile way. And I think, you know, success, as, as Tanya indicated, Anna, and everybody's indicated, the pace at which technology is enabling that, how we utilize that, government is at the core of that. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, Tanya, over to you. Yeah, um, so I definitely agree with this idea that many stakeholders need to be part of the story. Um, I would also add, though, that, you know, we've talked about multi-stakeholderism in terms of the sustainable development goals, for example. It's, it's language that we're already familiar with. Um, and of course, it's useful and important. But I would say in that context, when we talk about these distributed approaches, sometimes the responsibilities of different players, including governments, can arguably become less clearly defined than previously. And there's then a risk of nobody quite stepping up to genuine stewardship. And I think we should try to avoid that. And I think there is absolutely a leadership role uh, for governments to play. And they need to really strongly articulate how businesses, large and small, NGOs, individuals, can work with them. I also would just add, thinking specifically about how governments can enable their own digital transformation and, and make that a success, whatever success uh, looks like. Um, I would add that, you know, increasingly policymakers, public procurement officers are tasked with the uptake of digital and emerging technologies to improve how services are delivered, for example, you know, whether that's in relation to efficiency gains or accountability gains um, or other forms of public value. But often the procurers and teams that they're procuring for don't have particular expertise relating to the technologies on offer. Um, and I think that can lead to a couple of issues that it would be good for us to avoid. One is just innovation avoidance, which is completely understandable. And the other is the risk of buying technologies that are not particularly useful, therefore wasting public money, or that might even cause some kind of harm. So I do think it's important in this story of working towards a version of success um, that governments develop an understanding of key, of key advancements within the government technology market 
so that busy decision makers can focus their attention on how specific technologies being developed could both help them to serve citizens and shape and sometimes constrain their policy options. And I would just add that at State Up recently, uh, we published a piece of analysis that looked at the key technologies being used and developed by about 300 uh, GovTech startups internationally. We found that the technologies that were most frequently cited as being developed were, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, relatedly robotic process automation, big data analytics, and cloud computing, uh, computing, among a number of others. Now, simply put, if we know that, a great possibility would be for more policymakers, more procurement officers to be upskilled a little bit around those specific technologies. So they have a bit more understanding about what's available to them, what the limitations are, what they can do at this moment. Um, it's not about making everybody kind of double doctors in policy and engineering, but it is about that uh, appropriate levels of upskilling to ensure success. Just a final note on that question of what does success look like? I don't have the answer either, but I do think that we need to be rethinking our evaluative toolkits to be much more expansive than focusing on efficiency gains alone. Excellent, thank you. Uh, Anna, over to you. Very much. So, um, so what do we need to do? Well, I think we need to be uh, fantastically open-minded and very flexible. Um, uh, that's that that that's hugely important, and I think we need to be very um, collaborative. But actually, it's 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 more than being collaborative. I think as institutions, um, we need to recognise uh, what we can do, and 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 actually what other people can do, which we can't, and how if we work together, we will deliver more than the sum of the parts. To uh, use that that phrase, and I think quite often. Uh, uh, organizations are are sort of too comfortable with doing what they know is within their remit but not stepping outside and saying actually we're stuck now we can only we can only contribute this bit and we need you government to do that or we need you uh, legal services companies to do uh, something else so so I think that 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 sense of how we're all in this together and we won't make real progress unless we all make the contribution that we can. So we need to work together is 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 going to be absolutely critical to success. Um, and on, on on outcomes, I would say, well, I will mention low cost services because actually I think if we can take some of the cost out of legal services, we will uh, create better uh, access. But actually. The real prize is in, in new kinds of services uh, which allow people to access uh, legal advice. And, and I always think it's really important to think about uh, what success looks like by thinking about outcomes. And for me, the, the single most important outcome was, is, is that we really shift, from, uh, sh shift, shift the graph from one in 10 uh, uh, people actually uh, getting access to legal services when they need them to something much more, uh, much further up the graph to, to sort of eight, nine would be amazing. Uh, and that's what we have to uh, focus our efforts on, I think. Excellent. Thank you. Um, now, just to remind everybody watching via the Conservative platform that you can submit questions via the Q&A tool. We've got some fantastic questions already coming in. And in fact, I'm now going to go to those questions um, and I'll go to the panel in reverse order um, of what we've seen so far. So we'll go to Anna first. Um, so let's start with um, the number of questions uh, that fix on something that we've already been talking about today, which is around the digital divide. So Helen Milner from the Good Things Foundation says that given that the economy gets £15 back for every £1 invested in basic digital skills, is now, is now the time to invest to fix the digital divide for everyone? So that's one question on the digital divide. We've also got her colleague, Adam Micklethwaite, um, who asks... Um, how can government and business work together to reach the most vulnerable who lack the access, motivation and skills to use digital public services? And uh, this is something that uh, Lord Lucas uh, has already touched on. This is from Dr Mel Selwood. Should the government enforce the supply of broadband to every citizen regardless of location and update laws to put broadband on the same footing as water and electricity? So 
Is now the time to invest to fix the digital divide? How can government and business work together to reach the most vulnerable and uh, sort of universal broadband discussions? Uh, quite a lot to get our teeth into there. Uh, Anna, over to you first. Well, um, so uh, um, some very big questions, which are, are a great illustration of why um, actually we, we can none of us do this uh, uh, alone, because um, to Lord uh, Lucas's point at the out, uh, outset, actually some of these issues, particularly around uh, digital access, really fall to government and 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 also uh, in a way to to Ofcom. Um, but 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 I think from the point of view of meeting the outcome that I'm most interested in, which is uh, uh, increasing access, uh, the answer has to be in broad terms. Absolutely, we have to invest in it because it is those people um, who uh, uh, are most challenged in their ability to access legal services, who very often have the most uh, serious of, 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 of issues. Um, and, uh, and, and so investment is going to be uh, central. But I, I, would, I would say there's, there's, um, there's investment in giving people access to digital services, but there's also investment in organisations which can support uh, those who uh, find themselves in particularly challenging situations and can, if you like, uh, lead them on the journey to be being able to access legal services. And I'm thinking here particularly of third sector organisations who I think are uh, essential uh, partners uh, if we are going to provide access to a much wider uh, community. Um, and, and that's why our um, uh, challenge fund last year was uh, really focused on trying to uh, bring uh, third sector organisations who understand where the issues are, uh, who is uh, most in need of legal services and has the most difficulty accessing them and bring those together with tech, tech, tech providers and legal service firms because understanding those needs is the, is the start of uh, 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 what we need to do. Excellent. Uh, Tanya. Thanks. Yes. Um, I mean, I agree with Anna. I agree with Lord Lucas about the essentiality of digital infrastructure for all. Um, I think it's really, really important. Um, in terms of potential innovative approaches, I was interested to hear Anna mention challenge funds and challenge schemes, which I do think are an interesting opportunity because we're talking about an innovative area where we don't have ready-made solutions yet. I think these kinds of approaches where actually you're able to throw it out to a broad market and gain different suggestions and approaches is really important and is a, a valuable way forward. That said, often the problem with challenge funds and, and challenge programs is that they can hover at that level of pilots and not necessarily move towards either actual government contracts or larger scale funding. So I think they are definitely an important approach and I would like to see over the next few months and years approaches towards thinking about how to scale up the impact that they can have because I do think we're at that moment where we do need to see a little bit of a change in gear. Thanks, Janya. Jackie, over to you. Yes, so exactly spot on relative to, let's assume the utility and everyone has digital access. That is one part of the problem. Um, the other part relates to how do you upskill, how do you engage, and how do you understand the systemic barriers to everybody participating? And so as it relates to skilling, um, organizations such as the Institute of Coding, who's working with private and the government to focus on curricula, understand the, the, the needs relative to the market, and then mirroring that with opportunity is an example of how we need to do that scale work together. Um, as it relates to private sector, and I'll, I'll use Microsoft as an example, um, in the US working with local government and startups and private and public sector to be able to understand and scale at, at, in market with the skills identified, the identified opportunities, using data to understand the barriers and then really focusing on some of the systemic issues relative to what's going on in schools is really that holistic view and that collaborative view to be able to scale. So I firmly believe that the, what the best way to do this is to really create that local, private, public, 
looking, utilizing government and then scaling more broadly to be able to upskill, assuming that the utility is there. Thank you, Jackie. And Lord Lucas. I think the key to this is for the government to, to really understand how to have partnerships with the people it wants to deliver these services. Uh, it's all very well putting money into uh, curing the digital divide, uh, but most of the people who want to access those services really don't have the ability to, uh, don't have the information resources to know who's going to be best. So the government has to be there also as an assurer of quality. And that I think works best as a, as a long-term partnership uh, rather than as a, a, a stand-back regulator. I, I think uh, that too comes into the matter of providing uh, the, the basic infinite infrastructure in hard-to-reach areas. It's very much the government's responsibility to do this, and they should be looking to do that in partnership. Uh, my caveat about this is that I there's some real work to be done in making sure that British businesses uh, can benefit from this sudden flood we hope to unleash of greater internet awareness and, and utility. Uh, we really need to sort out uh, the problems we have created in, say, Amazon mar Marketplace and, and, and things like that. And we need to sort out uh, the fact that we have no domestic competition to parasites like Booking.com. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so we've got lots uh, of really good questions coming in. There is still time to submit uh, your questions to our panel if you're watching on the Conservative platform. Uh, and actually a lot of those questions come in terms of relationships between different levels of government and with uh, suppliers. So for the next round of questions, we'll go in the same order. So I'll start with um, Anna again first. Let's start with the, the sort of government one. So John Charlesworth uh, writes, the Balancing Act is to allocate responsibility and cost to the correct level of government, local, regional and national. So which services and where? How do we approach that sort of central versus local government question? And Hak Nawaz asks, given how crucial the digital technology is in every aspect of life, should there not be a government department in its own right to deal with some of these issues? So Anna, I'll, I'll send those really easy, simple questions to you first. Yeah, um, de de definitely above my pay grade and not something that um, the SRA would necessarily take a formal view on, to be honest. Um, but, uh, but, but, but so speaking personally, I would say that um, experience t tells us that actually a lot of um, uh, uh, this kind of very difficult uh, national change can't can't be done without finding a, a, a balance between national and and local. So you need a really strong. I mean, on on, on this, I think you need a really strong uh, national uh, leadership. But uh, but but actually, very often the things that will be required will be very different in localities. That's certainly true of infrastructure, but it's also true about uh, specific sorts of services. Um, and small is often is, is often absolutely best because you get a, a, a need that is established in in a particular community because of uh, the nature of the population or, or, or their geography. Uh, and uh, uh, going back to this question of need, they are able to articulate in a much better way what it is that they need in that locality. And if they can work or be put together with tech, tech providers and have local government support uh, for meeting that need then 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 that would be uh, um, ideal and we'll get we'll get that that will give us the best innovation so i think it's it's definitely true that uh, local uh, development has a huge part uh, to play in this process but but I, I i think one can't get away from the fact that you need this strong national uh, lead uh, and the same is true in a way in the regulatory space you need a strong strong sense from the regulator that this is an important thing for firms and others to be thinking about uh, but an awful lot of it will happen out of our sight out of out of our mind uh, and and sometimes that's where the most fruitful uh, innovation comes from thanks Anna Tanya 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I largely agree with what uh, Anna has said. I think that we want to avoid an overly fragmented or siloed approach where there isn't learning between different parts of the country or different government departments either. Um, but at the same time, context is absolutely key. And I think there's also an argument there for stimulating more local innovation ecosystems that are perhaps best placed uh, to serve some of their local communities. So I think it's absolutely finding that balance between uh, centre and locality. I don't think we're quite there yet, um, but to the extent that we can encourage um, you know, lesson learning between them, um, some central, both some central decision making, and but also knowledge management in order to ensure that there is good learning between different regions and different parts of the country. Um, but at the same time, stimulating local innovation, I think that's the best approach we can hope for. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Jackie. Definitely agree with what Anna and Tanya said. And this is where um, the point about harnessing the power of data to understand the problems nationally, apply locally, understanding the needs and, and having that balance of where you apply and allocate funds relative to the problems at hand. And so, so there's, there's this notion of ha having some central organization focused on data knowledge around all the things relative to technology, services, using the data to be able to do that. So I firmly believe that, yes, there should be some, something central that really looks at data knowledge across how you allocate the funds relative to the services and the need. Great, thank you. Uh, Lord Lucas. Uh, yes, I'm gonna agree with everybody on that. The, uh, I think I would add to that, that we really need to put in some work on building capacity uh, centrally, uh, I'm I'm a Dominic Cummings fan, I'm afraid, when it comes to uh, refocusing part of the civil service on delivery and making them good at it and making it a long-term career rather than something where you get switched around every every three years. Really, really do that well. Uh, but we need capacity building. And, and there are things you can only do in the center. The, the understanding how something works uh, well and with how it compares with other things is a central function. But the local delivery, understanding what needs to happen locally, how to work with whatever we're providing from the centre. Again, you need a bit of capacity building. Uh, local government has, has, in particular after COVID, is running very thin and we need to, we need to know that we need to put extra resources into it. Thank you. Lots of uh, lots of violent agreement on the panel today, and uh, a sort of shameless plug at this point for the Institute for Government's previous work on civil service turnover, which very much goes to to your points, Lord Lucas, um, and about how you build that sort of central uh, capacity and capability as well. Um, this time round, I'll go in the original order, so I'll come back to Lord Lucas uh, with the next set of questions first. So um, again, sort of two on the sort of outsourcing, actually a few on the sort of outsourcing and uh, procurement side of things. Bascal Basak uh, says, considering how important strate and strategic digital services are today, should the government build an in-house major project services team rather than outsourcing? Philip Virgo um, asks, should government require suppliers to pay consultancy rates to disability groups, for example, to check online services are fit for use? for their target audiences. And um, again, Hack Nowers, whose um, question we heard last time about should there not be a government department in its um, own right, um, was also uh, wondering, does that mean that there should be no outsourcing of defence and health projects? So um, the sort of sweeter questions there on the right relationship between government and um, suppliers. Um, so Lord Lucas, over to you first. Well, Philip Virgo is, of course, right, but I should declare an interest in that he works for me as a researcher, uh, despite the fact being a great deal more experienced than me. So I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't dare differ with him on that. Generally, on the subject of outsourcing, I think the government has to be really careful about thinking that it can employ the best people. I was the, uh, I was the Lord spokesman on agriculture in the middle of the BSE crisis. We had some really good scientists. They had a lot of data we understood nothing about what was happening. The moment we released the data, three weeks later, we understood everything. Uh, there's an awful lot of skill and intuition and, uh, and just sheer brain power out there that you exclude yourself from if you, if, if you don't outsource. But the nature of outsourcing, 
the need to have really strong critical relationships rather than just going for the for, for the for the cheapest specification um, is something we need to be much better at. Thank you. Uh, Jackie, over to you. Totally agree. There is a capacity and capability balance here in terms of how do you ensure within an ecosystem to deliver a service or outcome that you have what you need. And under the premise that within government there is limited capacity and capability, how do you augment that in the right way? Um, and so I think that we have to ensure that as we go through the procurement process, we look at what we really need relative to the outcomes. Secondly, um, the point about accessibility and ensuring that the services meet the needs of the, of, of the society. I think that as you look at what's the criteria for your suppliers to participate, that should be a, a minimum criteria. And so we need to set what the minimum criteria should be for those to participate. We should look at capacity and capability relative to who's partnering with us and really put some onus on our suppliers to innovate and bring something to the table as part of it in addition to that. And so I think, you know, this, this notion of how you engage and how you move in an agile way with partnership, capability and capacity is something we really need to hone as a government altogether. And building that in-house capability to understand what you need is where we need to focus from a capability perspective internally. Thank you very much. Tanya. Yeah, so I think that outsourcing enables access to innovation, uh, which is a good thing. But at the same time, you still need cohorts of individuals with the capacity to procure responsibly and provide oversight of projects realised for government. And that's critically important. Perhaps the cohorts can be smaller if you're doing quite a bit of outsourcing, but you still need uh, that role within government. It's absolutely critical, particularly around these big questions about responsible technology uptake and use, um, algorithmic decision making and things like that. And I do think that this links to a question about the relationship of governments to universities. So thinking with my university hat on for a moment, um, you know, universities continue to a great extent to define the talent pipeline that reaches government. Um, and I think, therefore, that universities do have a significant role to play in this story. And perhaps it's not talked about enough. So we're beginning to see, you know, internationally, actually, a number of sort of undergraduate degree programs that are specifically focused around artificial intelligence, for example. And I do largely think that's a good thing and potentially a good thing for governments as well. You know, whether that pipeline goes into uh, policy or to the world of technology. But I do think that the UK is particularly well placed, potentially, given our historical strengths also in social, political, economic analysis, in philosophy and ethics to create programs that are much more meaningfully multidisciplinary and develop a talent pipeline both for the public and private sectors, that's sufficiently reflective and contextually aware to use technologies as complements to human decision-making and with an eye to doing no harm. And so I think what we really need to concentrate on is creating a new generation of sort of digital translators operating at the frontier of governance and technology will potentially have a really powerful role to play, not only communicating the complexity of the technologies that governments might procure, um, but also in shaping, I think, how creators of both the technologies and policies around them negotiate the ethics and societal implications of their own inventions. Um, so I think we need to think much more about that pipeline. I would just add that, of course, we also need to think about government in its, its current state, um, not just about new and emerging uh, government and, and public servants. And so I think we do also need to ensure that more established policymakers and parliamentarians are sufficiently versed to make good decisions and provide scrutiny and oversight. Um, and I think that's how we get the balance right between ensuring innovation, but also responsibility on the part of government. Thanks, Tanya. Anna? So, um, so it, um, we could we could end up having a lesson or or, or, 
or a seminar about uh, good procurement, I guess. But I mean, it seems to me that um, essential to uh, um, uh, this is being really clear about uh, uh, what outcomes we all want to achieve. So you asked us that question right up at the top, Gavin, and it's a very difficult one to answer, but I think it's absolutely critical because if you know what outcomes you want to achieve, then you can begin to think about doing some procurement or working with outsourcers of one sort or another uh, uh, in a way which will deliver that rather than trying to second guess what, what expertise it is they bring to the party and telling them how they should do it. So I think, you know, actually being really, really clear, spending the time to think about what outcomes it is we want to achieve uh, between us all is, 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 is mission critical. I think it's, um, a, 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 for me, a very important element of uh, uh, um, then of the process is that actually I think we should be requiring uh, um, those who are engaging in this activity, um, being commissioned to do things, uh, to uh, engage with a, uh, an appropriate set of partners. So I think um, we, that, that, that should be part of what we're asking them to do, not, not reinvent wheels or create new networks where networks already exist, and they should be paying those partner organisations uh, um, to, uh, to support the work and, 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 and get uh, out to uh, those parts of the community that are going to benefit from uh, the development. So, so I think one of your uh, one of the questions was talking about whether suppliers should pay disability groups to check services. Well, that's a very specific thing, but yes, absolutely. I think sh suppliers uh, should be required in the procurement to make sure that they identify the organizations who can really help have the impact that's required and they should work with them and if and, and where appropriate they should pay them and they should definitely be paying for sector organizations uh, who otherwise wouldn't have the money to do it so so i think outcomes and then uh, clarity about the fact that we expect people to work together are really important parts of the procurement uh, exercise Brilliant, thank you. So we've got about three minutes left. So I'm going to try to squeeze in two final questions. Um, if you want to keep your answers relatively short, and I'll go in the same order. Uh, so starting with Lord Lucas. Um, so the final two questions. I think this one is sort of mainly for Anna, but be interested to get everybody else else's thoughts. Could legal regulators join other regulators in sandboxing to consider access to services through third parties? Something that we've seen with open banking and open finance. And a final question from Linda and Stuart. Um, digital leaders may need to consider an entrepreneurial mindset to drive change and encourage and infuse the new embryonic digital society workforce. So the question there is, how do we allow that to happen? Uh, so Lord Lucas, uh, to you first. I think sandboxing is immensely important. I really encourage regulators to do it. Uh, it's it's one of the great techniques. You you. Otherwise, you restrict innovation to people who have large sums of money uh, and can afford to take something to a to a fine state of completion before it starts to go live. Uh, no, so sandboxing very much so. Um, innovation, it's a whole government thing. It's it's opening up the whole of government to to the idea that you can be praised as a civil servant for buying something innovative from someone small. Uh, and that's a that's a structure we haven't achieved yet, but I, I, I hope to see. Excellent, thank you, Jackie. Very quickly, yes, I do believe regulation and regulatory bodies can partner together with a focus on trust, transparency, and ethics. And when you think about the oversight needed in this digital revolution in this new world, it's all about trust, transparency and ethics. And so I do believe regula regula regulation does play a key role um, as it relates to innovating um, ditto relative to what Lord Lucas said. Fantastic. Thank you. Tanya. Yeah, so just in relation to that question about innovation, there are so many different tools that we have available. But just to link it back to this question of digital divides and social divides, we know that it's much harder to enter entrepreneurial careers um, if you don't have access to capital and financing and, and a network. And I therefore think, you know, if we're fully going to take advantage of the possibilities of innovation and entrepreneurship and make it something that's valuable and useful across the whole country, then we should be investing perhaps more effort in diversifying the range of individuals and communities who have access to entering that space and working within that community. Excellent, thank you. And finally, Anna. 
Thanks very much. So, um, so yes, we 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 uh, um, have a fully fledged sandbox in our sites, absolutely. In terms of uh, our forward uh, strategy, we, we we have, as I said, something called Innovate UK, which which provides some of uh, that capacity. But we want to uh, build out a proper sandbox, and 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 I should say that. Um, that we uh, work uh, very closely or, uh, with a number of other regulators. And I think uh, it, that's hugely important because, um, so in particular, I would uh, uh, mention the, um, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, because, um, because the reality is that the issues which uh, citizens and businesses have don't fit sectoral boxes so uh, so so people have a, a, a range of issues actually legal and financial quite often very closely connected um, and uh, being able to ensure that um, uh, that's a whole set of issues are being addressed by a technological a piece of innovation a, a technological service is is enormously important um, and indeed our, our work already uh, very much uh, focuses on multidisciplinary practices for that reason, because that better meets the needs of the users of legal services. So in answer to the questioner, yeah, absolutely, work with other legal regulators, other regulators, legal and otherwise, uh, and, and perhaps in the end have some, some joint sandbox spaces which meet citizen need better. Fantastic. Thank you, Anna. Well, um, that's it for this event, uh, but please do tune in to the Institute for Government's other virtual fringe events today. Our next event gets underway in around half an hour's time at 2pm, where an expert panel will consider the question, can the government find a long-term solution for social care? All that remains for me to say are some very big thank yous. First to all of you for joining us and some excellent questions and apologies if I didn't get around to asking yours. Second, to the Solicitors Regulation Authority for supporting this afternoon's event. And finally, do join me in a virtual round of applause for our fantastic speakers today. A huge thank you to all of them. Hopefully see you at another of our events later today and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you very much. <laughs>